I've always been fascinated by the Great Wall of China. Amazing structure. This thing is 30 feet high, 18 feet thick, and 1,500 miles long. Ancient China built this thing to try to protect themselves from the northern invaders. They wanted an, an impenetrable defense against anybody that would try to come in and invade their land. And so they built something that was, that was too high to go over, that was far too wide to go around, and that was so thick that it couldn't be broken down. And it seemed they had succeeded. The only problem is that Within the first 100 years of the wall's existence, China was successfully invaded three times. Wasn't the problem with the wall. And the invaders didn't go around it. They didn't break it down. They didn't go over it. All they had to do was to bribe the gatekeeper. And they were able to just march through an open door and invade. The purpose of their wall failed because of the values of their gatekeeper failed. And each of us, you and I as well, have walls. We have walls of protection that we build. We also have values that keep those gates closed, that keep out any predators, keeps those away that we don't want, and our values protect us from those things. And we each have a gatekeeper. In fact, we are each our own gatekeeper. And the strength of our walls and our gates is only as strong as the values that we choose to stand for. We give in to our values, and it doesn't matter how strong your wall is, but just march right through that open gate. We also embrace a couple of different kinds of values. We've got values personally. We've got values corporately or institutionally. You can think of it that way. In that... Um, well, if what we believe and what any organization, for our interests this morning, what the church believes, if those two things don't match up, obviously there's going to be conflict. And when there's conflict between a person who is involved in a church or who comes to a church and the church itself regarding the values that they have, there's going to be a problem. The problem is that the individual is not fulfilled in that church and the organization itself isn't served because there's no heart for it. You know, we could hand out information all day long, but that's not the goal. The goal is not to make you smarter. The goal is not to say, okay, we've covered this much text, now we're successful. The goal is not information. But information, or, or the, the Word of God, is the means through which we accomplish our goal, and that is a life that has changed, transformation. You know, very few of us, I think, come every week because we feel like we're really, you know, we're perfect. We don't really have any way to improve. Most come because they realize they're not. And this setting, this environment provides for us the encouragement uh, from the Word of God, the encouragement from the people of God to be able to take another step closer in growth in our relationship with God. It all comes down to life change. Think about it. What good is it if we attend a bunch of Bible studies, but we don't grow? 
What good is it if we hear a thousand messages, a thousand sermons, but our marriages and our families don't improve? Information, knowledge alone isn't enough. A successful ministry has to have as its goal people that change. Otherwise, we've failed. Look with me, if you would, in the Bible at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is not going to be our major text today, but it is an outstanding introduction to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul gives us the biblical basis for a successful ministry, which is transformation. Last month, our staff and elders went to a great seminar put on by the Barna Research Group. And in it, George Barna made a statement that uh, was very intriguing. He says that Jesus said, follow me. And yet a lot of people have understood him practically to mean, repeat after me. As if information is the goal. You look at a lot of the discipleship programs of churches, say, let me see what you're doing as far as discipleship, and what they will show you is a curriculum where information is dispensed. And if you go through the curriculum, and you get all the information, and you jump through all the hoops, you're holy with information. And yet that is not at all what is to be our goal. Not education, but application of that education. In 2 Corinthians 3, the first three verses, Paul gives us what ought to be the basis of any successful ministry. And he starts off with a couple of questions. Look at verse 1. He, he asks, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? He asks, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Tonight, if you watch the Academy Awards, you will see People commending themselves for three and a half hours. And if you watch the little intro, it'll be four hours. Seven to eleven. Self-commendation. And that's okay. You've got actors, directors, and producers giving awards to actors, directors, and producers. Self-commendation. And that's okay. Somebody's got to do it in the real world. That's the way it happens. But in a ministry, that's not the way it happens. We don't affirm ourselves by ourselves. We don't affirm ourselves with uh, self-commendation, or as he says, letters of, letters of commendation. So for us, that would be like a letter of reference. And why don't we do that? Well, because, you know, when we do letters of reference or self-commendation, we're going to make us look good. You know, whenever you ask, hey, will you be a reference for me? Well, you're, you're not asking, hey, will you, you know, indicate all my flaws on a sheet of paper so I can hand it in to a potential employer? No. We pump sunshine. We make it look good. So that people, so we'll, we're put in the best light possible. And Paul says that's not the way we do it in the ministry. A ministry is not successful because we can stand up here and go, we're successful, yes, here's an award. A ministry is successful by another criteria. Verse 2, he says, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You see, you can commend yourself, and that proves little more than your arrogance. 
You can get a letter of reference, and all that does is prove who your friends are. But if you want to prove that there is a ministry that is successful, Paul says, you look at the lives of the people in it. If they are being transformed, then that ministry is successful. That is, he says, you are our letter. Your changed lives, how the Spirit of God has worked in you, that is what is our commendation. Or you could say it succinctly this way, that the proof of a successful ministry lies in the transformed lives of its people. If a ministry is working, then people's lives are being changed. And that's pretty much the bottom line. Okay, turn now to the right a little bit to the book of James, where we will spend the rest of our time. James chapter 1, the end of the chapter, verse, starting at verse 22. James 1, 22. Here's a question for you to chew on a little bit. If we're to be transformed when we come to church, rather than to be just informed, how do we go about being transformed? If changed lives are to be the validation of our success, how do we allow God to change our lives? This is what the whole book of James is about. Look at verse 22, which is where we'll start. He says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Prove yourselves doer. Probably a better translation would be become yourselves doers of the word. And not just those who hear it and deceive themselves. Sheldon Van Alken, the late uh, author, once described how a Christian friend of his named John came up to him and described how he was going to leave his wife and go marry another woman. And when asked why he would do that, when that is obviously contrary to what he believed... He came up with this reason. He said, it seemed so good, so right. That's when we knew we had to get the divorces. We belonged together. Another friend of Sheldon's, a lady named Diana, had a very similar experience. She said, it was just so good and right with Roger that I knew it would be wrong to go on with Paul. And as Van Alken goes on to explain, both of these people, both John and Diana, were, as he says, quote, invoking a higher law. That's the, that is the law of feeling of goodness and rightness. A feeling so powerful that it swept away whatever guilt they would otherwise have felt for what they were doing to their families. You see, James is saying, you need to be a doer of the word, not just one who hears it. Not just one who hears it, but doesn't do it. And it's a wonderful little contrast, the play on words that James uses here, because the word that he uses here for word is inside the word for delude or deceive. It's a fascinating word. It's made up of two words, one that means beside and one that means to think. And the, one, the word that means to think is from which the word word comes from. And so to think but this, to think beside something as opposed to being with it is the contradiction, the contrast that, he, that he's making. He says you can either be one who does the word or you can want, be one who is beside it and in deception of themselves, self-deceived. 
The primary goal for the Word of God is change. That's why we have this book. It's not to let us know what happened in ancient Israel. It's not just to let us know uh, a couple of suggestions that might be a better way to live. But this book is written to radically change your life, your thinking, and the way your life is going to progress. This is not a, a book of nice ideas. It's not a book of suggestions you can take or leave. This is a book from God to you that he gives you that you may be transformed. And that begins, first and foremost, by recognizing that your imperfection will keep you from heaven. You are not perfect. I am not perfect by any means. And that imperfection is enough to keep me out of God's presence forever. Because he's perfect. And he demands perfection in his presence. So what are we to do? Well, God did it for us. That is, that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. And anybody, we're told, anybody who places their faith in Jesus, that is, transfers their trust from themselves, that I'm going to heaven because of something I do, that trust is transferred completely to what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He has paid for your sins. Therefore, you don't have to do a thing, but believe and trust that Jesus Christ has paid for your sins. And then you are saved from condemnation. And you are given this wonderful text of Scripture that tells you how then, as a Christian, to live. The primary goal for the Word of God is change. First change to accept Christ and then the wonderful progression of growth in Jesus Christ. But you know what? We have several sad substitutes for that. We'll hear God's word when we come, but we've got sad substitutes that we use instead of doing it. You know what some of them are? We'll hear and we'll think, ah, I understand. Great. And that's it. That understanding is the goal. But it isn't. We'll come and we'll get an emotional experience. You know, we'll hear the word, God's spirit will touch our hearts, and we'll think, man, that is powerful. That really touches me. In fact, I had a guy one time come up and say, Boy, Wayne, that really touched me. And I said, Fantastic. So what are you going to do with that? You know another way that we respond to this, to God's Word? It's kind of what you might call ricochet conviction. Where something great comes and you think, Man, this is outstanding text for my sister. Ricochet conviction. It comes out, it hits you, and bounces over to your spouse. Hey, are you listening to this guy? He's talking about you. That's one way to respond, isn't it? And yet, what is, how is the text affecting you? See, there's wonderful ways to get around the fact that this book was not just written for your spouse. This book was not just written for your sister. This book was not just written for all the other pagans in the world. This book was written for you that you may be transformed into the image of the one who created you. And it's not just through information that that happens, but it's through not just hearing, but doing the word. Otherwise, we delude ourselves. 
James says, be a doer, not just a hearer. And he gives us a great example. Look at verse 23. He says, for, in other words, he's explaining, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. You know, James, when he uses, when he says, it's like a man who looks at his face in the mirror, it's not the generic word for man, meaning mankind or a person. Because it's like when a person looks in a mirror. That's not it. He says, when a male looks in the mirror. Very specific word. When a, when a male, when a, when a man looks in the mirror, this is what happens. Think about it. What happens, guys, when we look in the mirror? How does it usually go? It's usually something like this. If you're like me, usually walk up, kind of look, check it out, kind of clean the teeth, make sure the hair's right, and you're done. It's about that fast. It takes about 10 seconds. You're in and out. Some of us even keep our hair sort of short so we don't have to fool with it. It's fast. But a woman, on the other hand, she is not there out of curiosity. She is there for business, isn't she? She's there for change. And she uses a mirror biblically. Biblically, a mirror is for change. What's the purpose of a mirror? To show you something, to show you the truth, so that if you see it, and what you see you don't like, you fix it and t the way you like it. Right? That's the purpose of a mirror. is to give us an honest reflection of who we are, and if it ain't the way it ought to be, we fix it, we don't leave until it's right. That's the primary purpose of God's Word. God's Word is like a mirror. It gives us an accurate reflection of our hearts. And we are not to go away until we've dealt with it. You know, some ladies even carry little mirrors with them. What are they? Compacts? Is that what they're called? You just flip it open anytime. You can just kind of check it out and make sure everything's okay. What if a man were to do that? How about if you were in a conversation and a guy kind of pulls out a mirror and just, you know, kind of <laughs> checks himself out? You don't ever see that. Because that's not a way, the, the way a man works. And that's why James uses a male. He says, if it's like a male who looks at his face in a mirror, we don't do much with what we see. This is obvious. Look around us. We don't do much with what we see. You look at some single guys, bless their hearts. There's one single guy. I won't mention him because I don't want to embarrass Jim Wilder. <laughs> But you see the guy before he gets married, and you see the guy after he gets married, and there's a world of difference in the way he carries himself. He comes up, and he's not here, so I can talk about him. He comes up on Tuesday morning for prayer, and the guy shows up, you know, head to shave, just, you know, just kind of shows up, and he's got his hat on, and he bows in prayer, and I mean, bless his heart. And the guy gets married, and he's all shaven, and he's pressed, and he comes in, and everything is different. Because now he has the influence of one who takes a mirror seriously. <laughs> that is James's whole point. By and large, men and women act differently in front of a mirror. He says, with one who hears the Bible, 
and does not respond to how it reflects on their heart is like a man who looks at himself in the mirror and goes away doing nothing. In September, the Chicago Tribune had a fascinating article about a man named Tomas. Tomas was drafted into the Russian army back in the Second World War. He was uh, in the Russian army, but he spoke Hungarian. And so when the Russians heard him, they thought he was, it was, he was speaking gibberish, they thought he was a lunatic, and they put him in a hospital. And they forgot him for 53 years. And just several years ago, no joke, several years ago, a psychiatrist at the hospital figured out what's happened to Tomas and began the process of basically releasing him. And he recently went back to Budapest. He was called the last prisoner of World War II. He was heralded as a hero. But this guy not only had forgotten his name, but he had not seen his face in a mirror in over 50 years. And one news account of this guy said that when he looked in a mirror, this is what they wrote, quote, For hours the old man studies the face in a mirror, the deep-set eyes, the gray stubble on the chin, the furrows of the brow. It is his face, but it is a startling revelation. Can you imagine forgetting what you look like? No way. We look in the mirror every single day, sometimes several times a day. There's no way we could forget it. But this guy forgot what he looked like. See, the purpose of the mirror is to show you the truth. What person among us would go to a mirror, even men, okay, would see, you know, hair is is messed up, dirt on the face, sleep in the eyes, you know, the nose needs to be clean, you got chicken in the teeth, you're looking at yourself in the mirror, and you would just go, hmm, and walk off. Nobody would do that. We would do all we could to at least fake getting it looking right before we went back out in public. James says, that's what we do when we listen to God's word. We need to be as attuned in our hearts when, when we look at God's word, when we hear God's word, as a woman is to her appearance when she looks in a mirror. Just as attuned. That's why James goes on in verse 25 and gives a great contrast. Notice it starts with the word but. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. Notice the difference. You've got the man in verse uh, 23 and 24 who looks, but then in 25, the one who looks intently. It's a different word, in fact, in the, in the original language. Here, it's a word that means to bend over or stoop down. The, the implication is you're looking at the detail. And it's that kind of looking at the Word of God and then applying the Bible to your life, being a doer of the Word, he says, that gives you benefit. There's an 81-year-old man named Robert. Had no flying experience prior to 1998. But in 1998, he got a literal crash course. He was flying just him and his pilot buddy in this uh, single-engine airplane. And his pilot buddy all of a sudden... Dies. They're right there on the controls. And Robert, 81-year-old guy, never flown a plane before, grabs the controls, turns on the radio and says, Help! 
And uh, no, no joke, back in 1998. And uh, a couple of pilots were in the area, and so they kind of guided him through, said, this is what you do to ascend, this is what you do to descend, and here's how you land. And believe it or not, it was a rough landing. You know, jumped all over the place, ended up in a soggy patch of grass, but Robert was okay. Now here's the question. How do you think this guy listened when he was told how to fly that plane? We're talking a captive audience here. Because what happens if he not only doesn't listen, but doesn't do what he's told? He's dead. Now tell me how that's any different between you and me and the Bible. Moses wrote in the Old Testament, as he spoke of the Lord who told him, this is not an idle word. This is not something you can kind of take or leave. This is your life. It's not an ancient book just written to an ancient culture. It is a timeless truth written to you and to me. We should listen to this word as if our life uh, depended on it. Because it does. It depends on being a doer and not just a hearer. What good is a mirror if we don't act on what we see? What good is the Bible if we don't act on what we hear? What good is information if there's no transformation that goes with it? You could say it this way, that an informed believer becomes beneficial when the truth is applied to real life. Now that's a very general statement because so far James has been general. Very general. And yet he's about to get real specific. You know, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they knew information. A lot of them had the whole Old Testament memorized. And yet Jesus holds them up and says, look, see those guys? Don't be like them. Why? Because they were all head and no heart. They were all information, no transformation. They were all education, no application. They had all the book knowledge, but they didn't apply it. And Jesus said, don't be like that. Instead, he held up as an example a widow and said, be like her. Held up a pagan centurion who came to faith in Jesus, a simple little bitty faith. And Jesus says his faith is greater than anybody I've seen in the entire nation of Israel. How much did the centurion know? He didn't know schmatz about the Bible. But what he knew, he applied. And Jesus said, your faith is great. So now he gets real specific. In verse 26, he gives us an example of one who hears but doesn't do it. Look at verse 26. He says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. See, he's gone from generalities now saying, let's don't just be a hearer of the word, let's be a doer of the word. Now he says, anybody who says they're religious but doesn't bridle their tongue really isn't religious. Now, he's not saying they're not saved. And this is, I think, one of the major misunderstandings of the book of James, especially in chapter 2, where it says, What good is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? 
He's not talking about heaven and hell. He's talking about a physical deliverance in this life from God's judgment. He's, you, it's wrenched out of context to say that, that James is saying that a person who says he has faith but has no deeds really has no faith. The context of this makes it clear. He's asking, what good is it? What usefulness is it for a person to say they have faith but to not live it out? He says it's worthless. In verse 26, he says it's worthless. Further on down in chapter 2, he says it's useless. It's the same idea. Chapter 2, verse 20, it's useless. If you don't apply the word to your life. There was a, uh, a young man, first day on the job as a clerk in a uh, supermarket. Worked in the greens, greens area, vegetables, whatnot. And this elderly lady comes up to him and says, I'd like to buy a half a head of lettuce. And the guy says, well, you know, it's my first day, but I don't think we sell half a head of lettuce. She says, well, that's what I want. And so they went back and forth, and he says, well, ma'am, I'm going to have to ask my supervisor about this because, I mean, I'm new and, you know, I don't know. And so he goes over to the supervisor, and he doesn't know it, but the lady follows right behind him. I mean, right behind him. And so he's standing in front of the supervisor, and he says, hey, there's this old bag out there that wants to buy a half a head of lettuce. What should I tell her? And he sees the horror on his supervisor's face as the supervisor sees the old bag standing behind. And so he turns around and sees her, and he says, yeah, and this, this kind old lady wants to buy the other half of that, that head of lettuce. And the manager was so impressed with the way this guy responded that later on in that day he said, you know, I'm really glad we hired you. Tell me where you're from, son. He says, well, I'm from Canada, from Toronto. He says, the home of the beautiful hockey players and the ugly women. And the manager looked at him and said, my wife is from Toronto. And he says, oh, really, what team does she play on? <laughs> George Duncan says that to say what is untrue, to say what is unkind, or to say it unkindly, constitutes failure in Christian living and Christian witness. James says you can sing all day about the fact that you're religious, but if your tongue is unbridled, your religion is absolutely worthless. That doesn't mean you're not saved. Religion, what is religion but the outworking of your faith? A lot of people have religion. Buddhists have religion. But they don't have a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Big difference. What good is it if you say you've got it, but your tongue is hinged in the middle? It's of no practical value. On the other hand, there's a better way to respond to God's word. The last verse, verse seven, uh, 27. He says, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. See, there's the bottom line right there. Where does transformation show itself? You know, we can get real impressed with education. Our country is outstandingly impressed with education. You got, if you're educated, the more the merrier, all of a sudden you've got credentials. But is that really true? What do you think about the guy who's got outstanding credentials and yet treats his family like dirt? Is the guy really that outstanding? 
Where does true transformation show itself? It shows itself in your tongue. It shows yourself, verse 27, if you visit widows and orphans in their distress. In other words, those who absolutely cannot help themselves. It shows it when you keep yourself unstained by the world. That doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that you guard. In fact, that's what that word means, keep. It means you guard. You guard against the world's influence on you. And you fight it rather than going with the flow. That's, where, that's the bottom line. That's where true transformation shows itself. That is the religion, or that is the outworking of faith that God says, yeah, that a boy, that a girl. That's exactly the way I want you to be living. You see, the basis of a successful ministry is not that you know the Bible. It's not that you leave smarter. It's not that you understand. It's that what you do with that understanding and wisdom is to be a doer of that, not just one who hears like one who goes and looks at a mirror and goes, hmm, and walks off without combing your hair. That is the basis of what a, minister, a successful ministry is. So, as we conclude a series that will, in essence, never conclude on our core values, because they are core to what we will always be standing for, Lord willing, I want to challenge you today to not be the traitor in the gate. To not be the one that while we've got a great wall of solid doctrine, we have a weak link in that we have an individual who will abandon their values and allow all kinds of evil to come in. That each of us has a point in the wall to guard. And that point is only as strong as the values that you hold. You must stay strong. You must be firm. You must be a doer of the word and not just one who hears it and doesn't apply. Let's bow and pray together. <clears throat> Our Lord, indeed, we live in a nation, in a culture that says if you're smart, you've got it all. The more information, the better. We live in a culture where information is a God, and the more of it we have, the more godlike we are. And yet how unbiblical this is. What good is it to know all the truth if we don't apply the truth? What good is it to have a successful job and to have a family that's in tatters? What good is it to believe morality and yet to live immorally? What good is it to have all the blessings of true doctrine and yet to be a traitor in the gate that allows sin into the camp? Lord, we want to be those who are doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. Not in order to get our salvation. We know that only comes through faith in Jesus. But to do it because we already have salvation. To live in honor of you. To live lives worthy of you. To live such a way that we can show a ministry is successful by our lives being transformed. And so give us the strength today to submit to you. And as the Word has taught us about our tongue, as the Word has taught us about serving those who cannot possibly help us, as the Word has taught us about staying pure, I pray that you would strengthen us today to grow and to continue to be doers of the Word and not just hearers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you.